Today's episode is sponsored by Root, Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. Root is a collective of concerned Black families, community members, advocates, and interdisciplinary professionals dedicated to decreasing Black maternal and infant mortality in Ohio. Root's mission is to comprehensively restore our collective well-being through collaboration, resource allocation, research, and re-empowerment in order to meet the needs of Black parents and families. If you and your family are planning, pregnant, or in your postpartum period, please reach out to Root at www.rootrj.org. Financial assistance is available. You can also connect with Root at 614-398-1766 or email them at general-info at rootrj.org. Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Jennifer Walton, a marketing executive and community leader in the Columbus, Ohio area. Amongst those great titles, she is also a mother of two girls. We are thrilled to have her here and to hear her truth today. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family? Yes. Well, I um, recently launched my own business, my own consulting business. I have been a marketing executive for the last, I'd say, three or four years of my career. And I decided to take that expertise and really invest in myself. And, you know, instead of doing it for just one brand. I'm doing marketing and brand strategy for any brand that'd like to work with me. And that was something I did for myself, kind of standing up for myself in this current work environment, but also for my children. I have two little girls, as you mentioned. Uh, My oldest is six. Her name is Sabella, Sabella Nile, as we affectionately call her. And I have a four-year-old little girl. Her name is Skyla Nice. And then I have a wonderful and amazing husband, Sean Walton Jr., who is also a local civil rights attorney. I shouldn't say local. He's like a national civil rights attorney. So he's a pretty big deal. And I think within all of that, our family philosophy is teamwork makes the dream work. He'll be very excited that I said that. But that's really what it is. Seeing us as um, four partners in our family, and that's kind of how we approach a lot of what we do, is that we are all important to what makes this family thrive. And so I think for, if I could sum it all up, is just that we're not like a nuclear family. We rely very much on the village, but we're just a family that believes in the power of our collective love. And so I'm, I'm really excited to talk a little bit about what that has meant for us. Well, we're excited to introduce you to our community. Um, we love to share whatever our storytellers are doing outside of once they've shared their story with us. So anytime you have something coming up, please feel free to share it with us and we'll share it out with the world. Wonderful. Um, and we can start by you just telling us a little bit about your pregnancies. You know, so I am your typical type A perfectionist, Leo, extrovert, all those things I am fine with being. I had to embrace my truth a long time ago. And so with that comes a little bit of a control freak. So when I had my first child, I thought I knew it all. Honestly, I had read all the books. I was keeping track with my weight and I was doing all the right things. I didn't think about needing any other um, help or any additional services along with my standard care. I had my OBGYN who was a white male and I had no problems with him up to the point of my pregnancy and everything was going really well throughout my pregnancy. So I thought I had everything under control. That's probably a 
big thing that changed for me with motherhood was realizing that nothing is under control. And so with my first, all was going well. And the things that I experienced with my first pregnancy, such as the cervical checks that they start to do when you're preparing for delivery, those were things that made me uncomfortable, but I didn't even know. I had no idea what my own agency looked like with my first pregnancy. And so I just went with the flow. And it wasn't until it came right down to the wire. And I'll never forget my due date for my oldest daughter was the same as my husband's birthday. And of course, you're thinking like me again, control freak, always on top of the data. I'm like, well, only 5% of births actually happen on their due date. So it's not going to happen. I went into labor the day before his birthday and I thought, oh man, this might actually happen. But what was funny is I actually had no idea what labor was supposed to feel like. I just felt extremely uncomfortable and I started to panic. And so of course it was like, let's make our way to the hospital. And we had the apps and we're counting things and we're doing all the things that the books and the blogs tell you to do. And I felt like I was in control. However, after my husband and I are driving all around town waiting for things to progress because we're counting contractions and things would stall for a while, he decides, well, if we're getting ready to go into prime time, Jennifer, you got your hair done. I'm going to stop by the barbershop. So we stop by the barbershop. I'm waiting, counting contractions while he's getting lined up. And eventually we, we got to the hospital and it was later on that evening. We get to the hospital and they start doing the cervical checks and things aren't where they should be, but they kind of force the issue. They were basically like, well, you're not dilating, but we manually dilated you. So now we're going to admit you and you need to spend the next few hours walking around to hopefully progress this labor. Okay. I'm still thinking everything is going just fine. Continued checks. They're telling me to wait on the epidural. I'm kind of going through a lot of this pain on my own because I'm not entirely sure what I should be raising as an alarm. I'm not sure what supposed to be happening, how long this is supposed to take, but I start to feel like things are being rushed. I start to feel like I'm on the clock. And so I was admitted into the hospital that night at nine o'clock. Once the clock hit midnight, I realized that this baby is likely going to actually come on her due date, which is my husband's birthday. So this is supposed to be a celebratory moment for him turning 30. And we're still here in the hospital with not a lot of answers, but it wasn't until noon that next day where my actual OB comes in and it was so sterile, so clinical. He walks in and I could tell that there was some concern with the nurses and he's, and I say to him, Hey, I do not want a C-section. That was my only focus. I was born via cesarean. I did not want what I thought was to come after that. I don't want to have a C-section. And he's like, I don't want to do one. And so he slaps on his gloves sticks his hand in there and he's like, hey, we're going to have to do a C-section. I mean, it was like two minutes later. He's like, we're going to have to do a C-section. My husband is sitting there trying to Google what exactly is a C-section. And they hand me the the, the clipboard. They, I'm signing stuff. My husband, I mentioned he's a lawyer. I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to look at this? And it's just like, what's happening? And I'm thinking, okay, C-section. I'm starting to reconcile with the fact that he's like, hey, it's not the baby. It's you. Your pelvis is in the way. The baby's not going to make it through. So we're going to go ahead and do the C-section. And I'm, okay, that's gospel. I have no no response to that, but assuming that that's what has to happen. So then I remember asking, like, so what do you think? Like around five or six today or something? Like, what are you thinking? And he was like, right now. And so it was that fast where it went from, he's just here because he's doing his rounds to 
you're going to have a baby and it's going to be a surgical intervention. And no, we never talked about this, but here's the clipboard. They tossed my husband some scrubs and he had the Nikon still around his neck. And he was just like, I, I'm putting these scrubs on. And, you know, they did give me the epidural. The anesthesiologist comes back in and he's like, we're just going to pump this up a little bit for you. And that was that. I'm being wheeled back to the OR. And they were like yelling out like, okay, OR this and get this person. And I'm like, is this an emergency? Like what's happening? Is the baby at risk? And none of, none of these things I could even articulate. So I'm whisked away and I'm strapped to a table. Eventually they let my husband in and he's, I'm crying. Cause I'm just like, I don't know what's happening and he doesn't know what's happening, but he's trying to be strong for me, but he's describing to me what he, what's going on. And, you know, we decided not to, to be disclosed the sex of the baby. So at this time, we still don't know exactly what we're going to see. And they were like, hey, when the baby comes out, Sean, you can give us what the baby's gender is. So it was kind of like this moment of anticipation, but no one was guiding me through it. It was the anesthesiologist telling me, everything's cool. You're going to feel a little pressure here. And I'm just thinking like, are you, are you making cuts? Are you pulling, like, where are you in the process? Because I have lost all control at this point. Uh, well, things thankfully went well. And, you know, within a few minutes, I guess, 10, 15 minutes, they pulled a baby out and they swung her around to my husband and they were like, go ahead. What is she? <laughs> or what is the baby? And he was like staring. <laughs> I think he felt like this is too much pressure. And so, and it was, just, everything was just happening so quickly, but I'm sitting there strapped to the table going, well, look, does she have, does the baby have two turntables and a microphone or what? Like, it's either you got it or you don't. And so <laughs> he was like, it's a girl. And thankfully we had a name in the bank for if it was a girl. So it was like, oh my gosh, this is my baby Sabella. And my husband very gently, you know, um, he got a chance to cut the cord. They whisked the baby off to be cleaned and whatnot. And I had to be patched back up, but he just gently leaned to me and said, I need to be with her now. And are you okay? And so he went to her and he captured her first moments opening her eyes. And it, these are things that I'll never forget because I got the chance to see her hair. They brought her to me and I got to see what she looked like, but I was still strapped to this table, just immensely overwhelmed with emotions and physically unable to move. But then once, you know, things kind of got to wherever they could, eventually we were moving to recovery. They, they swaddled her up and handed her to me. And all I could do was just touch her skin and think, wow, like this is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. And thankfully all of that overtook the trauma of what had happened. And I was so hesitant to call that trauma. I couldn't name it that until much later. And I remember, you know, once you're in recovery, I was able to nurse and uh, you know, my husband was able to capture that on video. And then finally we were put into our room and I had the blood pressure cuffs and I wasn't prepared for any of that, like the inability to move any of those things. But I had questions. I asked my doctor, so can I have a VBAC next time? I mean, I mean, I was ready. I needed to know now. And he was like, no, you'll never be able to have a VBAC. It's not the baby. It's you. And that's exactly what he said. So I thought, wow, that was crushing. That was a blow. Um, but you know, you, Let's just focus on what the task at hand is. And I wanted to be there for my baby. But it was a couple of weeks later that I started to realize I didn't feel like myself. I felt like this baby, is she mine? Um, I don't know why. And I mean, honestly, I know what it is now. I was able to name that as postpartum anxiety. And thankfully, through community, uh, through 
women that I they knew that were mothers through the Black Lactation Circle, getting some additional resources around POEM, and then eventually getting to a place where I was talking to a therapist about some of my concerns because I just wanted to have some control back. I was able to say, okay, I have postpartum anxiety. Um, for a while, I was taking Zoloft just to deal with that because I had so many intrusive thoughts that scared me, not, not to the point of psychosis, but it was like, I'm walking up and down the stairs with her, like, oh my gosh, am I going to drop her? Or am I going to throw her? Because it just was like a random thought that would come in my head. And it, it, it went back to my ability to say the birth was traumatic. I It was a turn of events that happened so quickly that it felt as though she was taken from me, but I didn't have an active role in that. And so I had that weird disconnect and that made me so sad. It made me so sad that I really started to think about, well, what would I do differently next time? And that's when I even learned what doulas were. And I remember fast forward to getting pregnant again. My oldest was 17 months at the time and I was still nursing. We got pregnant again and I had long stopped taking the Zoloft, but I was like, oh my gosh, should I go back to it? Like, how do I prepare for this? But the first thing I did was get a doula because I didn't have access to someone to advocate for me that first birth. And it wasn't until the very end that I realized how important it was to have that. I needed it. Like the minute I found out I was pregnant, I I, I sought out a doula and I was able to hire um, a doula from Root. And from that moment, Jessica was my right hand. And she made the whole family doulas. My husband knew how to, to manage the process. And she told me things I had no idea. I don't have to do those cervical checks. Yeah, they made me uncomfortable. They hurt me. I didn't have to do that. And I got a new doctor. I had a black OBGYN at that point. And I had a team of people that were willing to try and were willing to work with me on my behalf. And so I had control back. And the whole pregnancy and the whole process in the back of my mind was the stat around whatever percentage of women who attempt to be back end up with uterine rupture would made it even worse. I had a coworker who her second birth, uh, she experienced uh, a uterine rupture during her VBAC and the things that she described terrified me, but good for her. She ended up having a third child after that, but I was so scared of the what ifs that it took away some of the joy that I was even trying to have in just this second pregnancy and having a toddler while growing another baby. But all of that was reclaimed when I went in labor the second time around. I, I felt more informed. Yes, the anxiety was there. And absolutely, I was concerned about what could happen, but it was just different because I was surrounded by support. And, you know, I, this time we did find out the sex of the baby and we were able to, to give her a name and we were able to kind of, I had a personality for this little baby this time. And I remember going into labor and I called my doula the point that I knew I was going to panic. I was like, okay, things are feeling a little tight. <laughs> um, I'm just a little concerned. And at that point I had not done any of those cervical checks. So I had no idea what was going on down below. You know what I mean? Basement could be flooded for all I knew. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, I don't know, I'm going to wing this. And looking back on it, it was intuition. It was something's feeling, and and this was earlier than her due date. So I was just like, things just feel like they're moving. And I told Jessica, I need you to come now before I panic and take things into my own hands and end up at the hospital too soon. That was not a part of our plan. The plan was to stay home as long as we could. And boy, did we. We spent the whole night with her 
holding my hand. And at four o'clock in the morning, and I do not mind saying this, at four o'clock in the morning, I'll never forget, she had been telling me sleep through the contractions, which sounds silly, but it worked. It really did. I got like three little increment, three little minute increments of sleep. But at four in the morning, I couldn't take it anymore. And I just looked at her and I said, hey, I got a question. Never done these things before, but I'm curious. Do you by chance have like an eight ball of cocaine or maybe some lore tabs or something? I was like, I don't even know if those things are still in circulation. I just need some really hardcore drugs to get through this. And I was like, um, I had not experienced this as my first birth. So because as soon as I could get the epidural, I got it. And she looked at me like, no, I do not have an eight ball of cocaine. And no, I do not have lore tabs. Like she was like, where did you even get that from? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, but I'm kind of feeling like I'm not going to make it. <laughs> but she was like, girl, you got to stop fighting your body. You got to let this thing happen. And I held on for as long as I could. And by the time we realized that my water was breaking, she was like, okay, finally, let's go. We went to the hospital and I was four centimeters dilated. So that was this massive improvement over what I experienced before. You know, they wouldn't let me eat. So I threw up everywhere. Um, <laughs> it was completely chaotic. But by the time I got to the hospital at like noon, six hours later, I pushed a little baby out. And I, I just remember... First of all, my 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 mother-in-law was recording it. And when the nurse was like, you can't record. She was like, no, I'm not recording. Of course she wasn't recording. But um, I thought that I pushed for three hours. When I watched that video and it was all the four and a half minutes, um, I was like, okay, well, I worked really hard for those four and a half minutes. But I did it. Like, I did it. They literally, That man literally looked me in my face and said, no, you won't be able to do this. Like you will not be able to deliver a baby the way God designed you to do it. And I did it. And I'll never forget that like forever because it just, it was it, the way that it allowed me to deliver this child and literally get up 20 minutes later and walk to the bathroom and be able to have my oldest taught my toddler come in and be a part of this now growing family. I, I just couldn't have imagined if I had to have another C-section and especially if it was traumatic like that. And I mean, they were like, Hey, you could schedule it and you can make it a nice little luxury spa experience if you want. I'm like, no, it was worth it more to me to try. Uh, and then it might, maybe not, I was willing to accept it not working out that I was more than I was not willing to just not try and I did it. You absolutely did it. I'm thinking about his words to you, um, your first doctor, and how people really just talk without thinking about the implications of their words or the power of their words um, and how that set with you. Even when, you know, you talk about how Jessica was telling you to let it go, like, and my my thought is, well, they said I couldn't right. do this. So, and it, what your body is, has taken that in, like I can't. And do it this. terrified me. I mean, I, I was probably delusional to ask for drugs, but it was just a matter of I am so scared of what's going to happen. And I will be honest with you, like we joked kind of in the beginning, like I see a baby and I'm like, well, could I do it again? And there's a lot to unpack as to why I wouldn't have another child. I think society really hasn't set us up to have big families 
the costs of having children are just exorbitant. Like there's so many reasons, but as a black woman, it's terrifying to think that my desires, wants, and wishes will be ignored. And if I may go back to, I got a new OBGYN when I was pregnant. I mean, actually, as soon as I had my first baby, I was like, forget that. I mean, I don't need a doctor that's going to talk to me that way, honestly. And I had no problems with him up until that point, but then I can't. I got a black woman as an OBGYN and she's phenomenal. But even still, there was a moment probably like halfway through where I was like, so just want to make sure we're still clear on the labor plan, you know, going to labor at home. And then I'll come in as soon as things get a little testy. And she was like, no, you cannot do that. You need to come into the hospital as soon as you're in labor because you have a scar in your uterus. And I was like, I, you're already changing the game on me. And I don't like that. And so I called Jessica. I said, Jessica, would you be mind, would, would you mind attending the next visit I have with my OBGYN? Because she's starting to sound like she's wavering from our plan. And she did. And, and Jessica was able to really just show her depth of knowledge and her expertise and her partnership. And then I think that alleviated my OBGYN's concerns. I think the other thing that's interesting, and I have friends now who are pregnant, and I tell them you need a doula and you really need a team that you can trust and support you is that I also didn't understand how hospitals work or how like large offices worked, right? So even if my new OBGYN, she had a midwife, another OBGYN, and then there was even a fourth person. And so you spend your time meeting all of those people because they may not be the, your doctor may not be the doctor that's on call. I, I mean, I, even though I met them, I still didn't know what that meant. I thought it was like, well, if she's on vacation or something like that. And so it was very confusing to me to be in labor. You know, uh, Jessica was calling. And so, you know, I didn't understand even just how the hospital systems worked or the doctor's office worked. And their process was there was a midwife, there was another OBGYN, and then I believe there was like a nurse practitioner. And so you met with all of them in the event that when you go into labor, you know, one of them may be on call. Even in my mind, I thought, well, that's just backup in case someone's on vacation. And so it was still shocking to me when I went into labor and Jessica had been calling my doctor and talking to my doctor and then I get to the hospital and they're like, well, this person's on call, but your doctor doesn't even work till tomorrow. And I was like, well, I didn't realize I had to deliver my baby like on their schedule. So I was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of what they were saying was like, you know, they're only here from these days to this hour. And that just kind of blew my mind. So even though I did rotate throughout my 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 visits throughout my pregnancy to meet these different folks. So it wasn't a surprise when a different doctor walked in. Yeah, I met with him, but that's not my doctor. And not only that, when I, um, and this is my second child, not only that, like I just so happened to be having my baby during shift change. And so it was like, I remember um, as my labor progressed, I, I never got my cocaine, never got my lower tabs, but um, at one point, gosh, what was it called? There's like some, some drug that they can give you in the hospital. That's not the epidural. It took the edge off of things. And I remember they gave me a little bit of that. And I looked up at Jessica and I said, I just really love you. And she said, okay, it's kicked in. I'm like, cool. I'm like, I can still feel things, but I love you and I'm cool with it. 
And so whatever that stuff was, shout out to that stuff because it worked kind of nicely, but I was still in control. Control is like the overall theme. But I eventually did get an epidural when I almost missed it. And Jessica was really trying to hold hold me off on it because she's like, I know you can do this without it. And I was like, baby, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm just too scared. And honestly, this the fear was, again, this uterine rupture. Like, what if this doesn't work out and I'm in the middle of that and I feel that? I just didn't want any more trauma associated with the birth of my child. So to me, the epidural was a safe choice to ensure at least there wasn't pain associated with the with her arrival. And I almost missed it. They finally got me in there and got my epidural and I was seven centimeters. And next thing you know, I was 10. But this is like apparently shift change is happening. So they're like, we're going to wait for the doctor to come. And I look at Jessica and I'm like, hey, so here's the thing. I guess I, I told her, I said, I think my baby, the baby's GPS is messed up. Like I'm a little concerned that she's going to come out of the wrong place because this baby is in my butt. And she was like, how constant is that feeling? I was like, nah, sis, like, like I'm getting ready to like <laughs> have like a really bad situation here. And I'm like, so can you help me out? And so she was like, hey, the baby is coming. So can y'all get the doctor in? And they were like, well, he's got he's not even in the building. He's got to walk in. He's got to sign some forms. And I could sense my husband's energy changing like, nah, I, I will go get this man because it's time to go. And then there, and so Jessica was like, well, look, hey, lady, can you stand in front there? Because we about to push this baby out. And Jessica looked at me and she was like, it's time for you to push. You've described the baby being in a place where it's time for you to push. Thinking about the differences in the, my two deliveries, I think I experienced labor with my second child with a lot more control, a lot more autonomy, and still, you know, not entirely sure exactly what I was doing, but like my intuition was there. But having my doula and also all the work that she did to get to, to get my husband up to speed with what could happen, what would happen, made all the difference. And so as I mentioned, not quite understanding how hospitals worked and timing and, oh, I have to wait for doctors to do their shift change. And then this guy's got to read paperwork or talk to a nurse. And yet, meanwhile, I'm sitting here, I'm 10 centimeters dilated. I've reached the golden size or whatever that is. Like I know in my mind that things should be going forward, but everything felt stalled. And so here I am sitting there. My baby is now descending into the birth canal. That's what I know that to be now. But in my mind, because I had had the fun drugs, whatever they gave me to make me not so on edge. And then I had at that point gotten the epidural. So I was pretty much kind of confined to what was happening at this time. And I'm like, hey, Jessica, this baby is in my butt. I think the baby's lost and I'm really concerned about how this could go south. And I'm like, we've already done enough damage down here. I just need to know that like everything's on track. And she was like, well, how constant is that feeling? I'm like, nope, baby's in my butt. Pretty sure that's where she's coming out. So like, we need to like course correct this thing real fast because I'm terrified. And she's going back and forth with the nurse, like, hey, we got to get this baby out. And the nurse is like, well, the doctor's coming in. He's filling out his paperwork. And my husband's like, look, I really don't care about no paperwork because my wife's getting ready to have this baby. So like, what's good? And Jessica's like, look, you need to stand up front, catch this baby, or I'm going to do it. Because she looked at me and she's like, Jennifer, push. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. I I told you where I think the baby is, but I'm going to go ahead and do what you say. And I remember just like, not quite pushing right. Because then it was like, you know, do this and do that. And I I said it when I kind of 
I gave the overview and described the birth early on that you couldn't have told me that I did not push for three hours and that I wasn't giving it my holy all that I didn't. I mean, and I was moaning ancestrally. Okay. I mean, I was deep into my lower register. I was Tony Braxton in the moment. And I just remember like, finally the doctor's there and he's helping and he, you know, it's just, it's so funny how no matter what, and all my best efforts, I wanted to have this black doctor. I still ended up with another man that was actually delivering my baby. And he still intervened. It was, you know, let me pull out the vacuum and you're not going to be able to do this without this thing. And so again, in my mind, well, I'm pushing for three hours by all means. Yes, please bring out this vacuum or whatever you need to do if, if it helps the baby. But then upon reflection, looking at the recording that my mother-in-law illegally took, it was all of four and a half minutes. And things move really fast, but I also still kind of question, like, was that intervention necessary? Thankfully, I had Jessica. Thankfully, everything moved relatively quickly. And I delivered this amazing baby. And I think day and night, I got up, I was able to walk. I was able to do things. I was able to just be a part of these moments and be present with this baby. Because as soon as they handed her to me, the first thing I said is, so she's a little slippery. <laughs> and I was like, and then, okay, you, I have to say this because this is just downright honest. I also was like, this is what my insides smell like. I mean, again, I don't know what was going on in my brain. <laughs> and from my first kid, you know, I learned all about cool stuff when I went through, um, and got involved at the Black Lactation Circle. And it was like, oh, Vernix is some good stuff. Like rub it on the baby, do all these cool things. We talked about delayed clamping and all that stuff. And I really wanted it to be a lot more of an earthy, more natural experience. But then like push come to shove, they put the slimy baby on me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I did it. I was so excited that I did this great thing. But I was also like a little grossed out, not even gonna lie. I was like, she's a little slippery. This is what my insides smell like. This is really blowing me. So like, I'm going to just hand her back for now. Could you just give her a quick little wipe off? <laughs> and they did. And then they handed her back to me and I was able to latch and nurse her almost immediately. Whereas before it was this delayed recovery. I mean, we were like riding down the hallway together until I can get to a room. And it was all this work with my first breastfeeding. It was got to have three pillows and sit this way and put your arm that way. And I just was doing all of it. And it was so frustrating that I just, I was, I, I gave up all the ways that they kept telling me that like my body was not doing what it was supposed to do made it so hard for me to trust my instincts. And it wasn't even with my first, my husband and I had a traumatic situation where he had a very close family member in the hospital who ended up passing away. And we were there in the hospital and I was there with our newborn and I ran out of formula to supplement with. And I was using formula in addition to pumping and nursing, but I had zero expectations for how much breast milk I should be producing. And I just kept thinking I wasn't producing enough. But in that moment, I ran out of formula and all I had were my boobs. And guess what? I fed my baby for a couple of days and with my just my boobs. And I didn't go back to formula until she went back, until she went into daycare and I went back to work. But it was like, I had to be forced to trust my intuition. The second time around, I was like, I'm not doing the 80,000 pillows. I'm not doing all of those things. I'm just going to hold my baby and we're going to figure it out. 
And it was like instant. And so just the the sheer amount of, again, control that I had over the process and the experience and just having a voice, like just saying like, I can I try it my way? Because in a day or two, y'all are going to like be gone. You're going to like leave this poor, precious thing in my care completely. And my husband and I are going to go home and I got to figure it out. You're not going to be there. And so second time around, I definitely felt like I had much more control um, and it was easier for my family to grow at that point. Motherhood can be such a moment of realizing that you're not actually like a resource, but the source, like you are the source. Like it's not <laughs> something you're pulling and bringing to it's already right here. And to that point, you know, I will say one thing my doctor said, the first doctor was, I was like, I'm reading this book and I'm reading that book. And he was like, well, good luck. Cause the baby doesn't read any of those. And I think that's accurate. I actually think that's a good point of view, which is like, yeah, it's good to have that information, but your baby's going to do what your baby's going to do. And also your, you mom, you dad are going to do what works for you. And so I was the source because, and I, I, I'm so thankful for my husband for understanding what was important to me because with Skyla, my second, she didn't have a bottle for months. And so I was so committed to just what was comfortable to me, which was nursing. And I didn't want to pump unless I had to. And realizing that she was going to get everything that she needed from me, directly from me. So feeding with our second was not something that he could do, but he was willing to bond in a variety of other ways. And he allowed me to be the source. Neither one of my children, as much as we tried, would take a pacifier. I was the pacifier. And so that was okay because when it was time to go, when it was time to wean, well, that was the easy transition, but it was one of those things where he and I were in a rhythm and in a groove of what worked for us collectively. And it was, Hey, I don't want to introduce a bottle. I'm going to be the one that provides her nutrition. And he was like, by all means, but the ways in which he was able to bond and form connections with her and find ways to calm her and, that was based on his knowledge too, from what he had to do when he stepped in with our oldest. And so that partnership was just always so important to us. And for me, it was to not feel like I was the only one responsible for things, but that I I had a voice in how we were going to do things and that he respected that, but that he also felt like he had a voice in ensuring that his connections and his bonds were being made and securely um, and, and, be, and being made securely. So he did his kangaroo care. He did his skin to skin. He did all the things that dads do to to show protection. And that just, that allowed me to really step into my power and kind of right the wrongs of the first pregnancy and the ways in which I had to deal with that. And I didn't have to, there was no anxiety the second time around. I trusted myself. Um, I didn't have to be medicated or anything. And it allowed me to even look at my oldest with so much more awe and so much more wonder and be like, baby girl, like, this is possible because of you, because you stuck it out with me while I was like losing it and not entirely sure of what I was doing, but you stuck it out and you were resilient. And now I can show up for your little sister, a better, more evolved mom. Um, and it just, it made everything so perfect. When you talk about the books and things that you read, that kind of laid some groundwork for, you know, starting your education into pregnancy but when you went into your second pregnancy, you chose Jessica and Root. What actually led you to them? So 
it's so funny. Like, you know, you have friends and like, again, like doula just sounded like something for rich people. Like, oh, you're going to pay for an additional service. Like that just sounds quite nice. Um, and I actually had a friend who I'd known, um, Monique. And so she was, she had actually introduced the concept of doulas to me. And I asked her like, so can you kind of connect me in? I don't know what, I don't know what to expect. Um, and it was funny because even going back to the books I read and perhaps I wasn't looking properly, but I just kind of went to the tops of the pile, right? Like what to expect when you're expecting. And it didn't dawn on me to even consider books that talked through birthing as a woman of color, birthing as a black mom. And so, and even as I'm talking to you now, like I just never dawned on me to even think about considering how that may be a nuanced perspective. And, but that, those things weren't at the top of the pile. I didn't think that at that time, I had no idea how more likely I was to die than my white counterparts. And I thank God I didn't think about it because I was already terrified enough. Um, And so with having the doula now, I tell people all the time, like they're, they're like, someone even whispers to me that they think they're pregnant. I'm like, do you have a doula? Like I dream about fish. I could dream about fish sticks and I'm looking around like somebody needs a doula because I just like fully believe in you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes it's too late because I had the picture perfect pregnancy up until the last 24 hours. And then even with Skyla, whereas, uh, you know, I, everything was going as I desired it. She still had to advocate for me. They still wouldn't let me eat. They were like, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. And she was having to sneak me food or do certain things just to ensure my comfort. And I think the way that it was positioned to me was someone is always going to take care of the baby, right? So you got the pediatrician, you got all these things, but, but, the way that it was described to me is like the doula takes care of you. And I, and you know, like, and I guess like the OB, I'm the OB's client, but I still felt like, you know, I was just a part of their day. Like I'm going to go through my list. I'm going to stop in room 206 and I'm going to pop this baby out, whatever. Or I'm going to rush the baby to the, rush this parent back to the OR. But it was this idea of having this advocate for me and this person who would stop and go like, I'm going to be concerned about you. And then the fact that there was going to be additional support after delivery. And that's honestly like I thought, man, do I want to be a doula? Because my goodness, like the reality of it is, is it takes so much more of a bigger village. Like when you're doing, I tell people you're doing your birth registry, put on there somebody to come bring me some food. And I offer to people like, listen, I don't know what kind of mom you are, what kind of parent you are. Do you want me to come over and hold the baby or do you want me to come over and do the things? Because with my first, I needed someone to come over and hold the baby because I was losing grip of myself. So I had to step away and I needed to take a shower without freaking out that the baby is going to cry. With my, and I mean, I remember like I, I ate cream of wheat for every meal when I was on maternity leave the first time. That was the only thing I could make that was fast. I could hold the baby and stir with one hand, but there was like no nutrients in it. Right. And then my second time around, it was completely opposite. I needed someone to come and do the things because I had control of myself and I wanted to bond with my baby. And sometimes I would feel guilt about that because I just was not myself the first time around, but I have forgiven myself because my baby is okay. 
And she forgave me. She's like, I mean, she's six now. If I asked her, I swear she would tell you exactly what it's like. I swear she can remember. And so she's forgiven me, which gave me grace to forgive myself, which allowed me to show up for Skyla and bond with her and, and have a different perspective of what I needed at that time. I love how you expressed like, you know, I don't know what type of mother you are, but in this moment, do you need me to take care of, do you need me to do the things or do you need me to hold the baby? And we talk a lot on here about how, how, how postpartum is forever. And I think that's a great way, like on that journey of in the beginning, sometimes, you know, the focus is like, I do need you to come do the things. But as we move through our journey, sometimes it's, I need you to come hold this six-year-old or I need you to come... <laughs> Mm-hmm. take care of this three-year-old right now. Or maybe I do need you to do the things, but I just loved how you phrase that and how that can be just a great way of, you know, acknowledging where people are on that journey and what they might need at that certain time. I talk all the time about how I want a commune and like, not like, you know, like not full Kanye West commune kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? And at one time I watched like a random, um, a random cult, documentary on Netflix. And there was a few times where I was like, I mean, but points are being made here. Um, and so I guess like my, my, my take on that is, is truly like, I, I believe so strongly in the village and I I'm thankful that you mentioned that it's not like postpartum is forever. Right. And so I, I said, I had postpartum anxiety and I talked about how early on I had to take Zoloft and I was terrified about that. I didn't want to do it, but I also just needed some peace in my mind. Well, what I've learned since then is, Jennifer, you probably always had anxiety and now you're just now dealing with it. And you, you know, one, I can't blame my kids. I can't be like, well, I didn't have anxiety until I had my kids, but it was the reconciliation of the fact that I probably always had it. Having children brought that strongly to the forefront. And now it's something that I actively manage. But it does still show up in my parenting. And now I have a six-year-old and now I have a four-year-old. And there are little things like when my six-year-old is like, she comes home from school and there's drama. And I'm a millennial parent, okay? So I'm not the 80s parent that's like, God bless my mother, because I know she's going to listen to this. You know, my, my mom would be like, you had a good day at school? Cool. And that's that. I'm in the business now. I'm like, and who is so-and-so? And what did they do? And what's going on? Like now I got to call every all the aunties and we got to roll up to the school. We got to ride at midnight on these kids. And so it's like, it's a different world, but it's recognizing that I'm still in postpartum, right? So sometimes, yeah, I need to, I need all my parents to strap up. We rolling up on the kindergarten class or it's like, I need you to tell me that that's dumb, Jennifer. Like, <laughs> you don't fight five-year-olds. And, you know, like, give me some perspective here. And it does. And yeah. And so the I'm thankful because the people that were there in the beginning, and I had to, I had to be honest with them and be like, I don't feel like myself. And I had to tell people things that were uncomfortable at the time because I was like, I want help. I don't want to be in this place alone. And to this day, they're still there. I mean, my husband was always there, but it's the extension of that that's really important. And so and I once I realized it for me, and I had apologized to some of the friends that had had children before me, because you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know how to show up and help for them. But even now, I tell people, like, even with that registry, like, be thinking about all the other ways you might need support beyond the pretty dresses or the cool outfits or the upper babies. Like, the car seats and all that stuff are important. But like low key, put some space for your village to show up. And you may not know until you're there 
give yourself some time to figure out what that ask is going to look like. And I tell my friends, like, you're going to ask or you're going to not want to ask. And I'm going to just tell you the options. Like I said, I'm going to come to you at some point four month, four weeks later. And I'm going to say, do you need me to hold the baby or do you need me to do the things? And even now that I have six and a four-year-old, it's our circle of friends. Hey, we're going to have a sleepover. Do you need a night off or mom, do you want to stay with us? Because I get that too, right? Because now we're in the period of sleepovers and I'm like, my children ain't sleeping over and nothing. We sleeping over. Okay. Like well, I'm there too. I hope you got space. And you know what I'm saying? But, or I, or I host and it's coming to my home and it's really only the vetted people, but still you two are welcome because I get that where we are and I get the mentality and I do whatever I can to make people feel comfortable because I know what it was like. You shared so much good advice um, to our listeners. Is there anything else that you can think of that you would want to share with them about your actual pregnancy or even just with the postpartum and other types of parental advice? I think one thing is like having a circle that understands is really important. Uh, There's just so many different little things. And I think, you know, it's wonderful. don't ever leave behind your your best and closest friends. That's not what I'm advocating for, but I'm just asking that as people begin to make their journey into parenthood, and this is to the fathers too, get your village up. Get the people who have been there and that know what it takes and know what it's like to be supportive of you and pay that forward. So pay that kindness forward. Do those things to help you think about what to prepare for and also to make the journey a little bit more efficient. Again, you get really caught up, especially your first pregnancy, on all the fun stuff. And that is a part of the joy. But prepare for the real stuff, which is like, yes, I had no idea what a nipple shield was, but I was struggling with nursing. I got a nipple shield and I didn't realize that it's supposed to fit a certain way. So when my baby started sucking and she sucked a blood clot out of my nipple and there was blood everywhere, I thought she took the whole thing. I thought she took my nipple. I was like, well, that's that. That's gone. And like my husband and I are looking, I mean, my whole chest was full of blood and I didn't know what it was, but it's like, I had no one at the time to turn to and be like, has this ever happened to you? Because my, my village of parents was kind of small at the time, very small. And now it has grown such that, yeah, when I had my second kid, I was calling people at four in the morning, help me. I was like, oh my God, this mucus plug is coming out. What the hell is that? <laughs> like... And I was able to go to people and and get talked down or get validation. So I think it's really important to have a really strong village because the questions that you can ask completely vulnerable questions to. And so oftentimes I I offer that to my friends. Like, listen, some real sick shit's gonna happen to you. Call me. I just just I'm not gonna be afraid. And I think the other thing is like in doing that, when the postpartum time comes, like immediately, most immediately and you are all over the hormonal place, you need some validation or you need to be talked off the ledge a little bit. You know, I, my second child, I had my placenta frozen into capsules and I still have some of those capsules and they still smell like that time they pulled the baby out and I smelled my insides. That's what those capsules smell like. I'll never forget it. Um, but, you know, it's little things like that. Like I encapsulated my placenta and that was a part of that process for me. And it was because I knew someone who did it and I was able to ask some questions about it. There's just so many things that you don't think about that having that circle where you can be super vulnerable and super gross with matters a ton. Um, And I think the other thing is 
nothing is normal, but everything is normal. Like I, I just, you know, you start to feel like, does this make any sense? And even now, and that's why I love the idea that postpartum is forever. There are things that my four-year-old does and I'm like, is this normal or is she a sociopath? And then it's like, oh, okay, that's normal. Got it. Got it. Didn't know. But I'm a, I'm a gentle parent, right? So back in the 80s, again, my mom, she's dope. She's going to listen to this. Like, it would be like, you know, children are to be seen and not heard or whatever the case may be. Or, you know, it is what I said it is. And, oh, you spilled this glass of milk. Why did you do that? I've learned so much about being a gentle parent and also meeting my children where they are. But some of that I had to ask, like, is this normal? Or, you know, am I dealing with like <laughs> something that is out of this world? So that has helped me right-size my thinking. It has helped me approach parenting in a place where when I'm reaching my max, I know who I can call. And they can get me back into a place where I can show up for my kids like a human as opposed to like a, like a mom that's out of control. And now that I've taught them this, they know how to pull me back off the edge of being like, hey, mom, like you're acting kind of weird. Or you're approaching me in a way that you that I don't appreciate and you and you taught me to be able to articulate that to you. All of those skills I have grown through my village of other parents who are parenting consciously, who have still yelled, put your damn shoes on, but then come back and said, okay, I'm sorry for speaking to you that way. That whole mindset shift has been thanks to having a village that I can go to and be like, okay, I slipped and they pick me back up or, okay, like, how would you have handled this? They pick me back up. My little one, she learned how to masturbate too soon in my mind, right? Cause I just wasn't prepared for it, but I was able to go to Erica Butler and be like, okay, well, this was the advice I gave my kid. I was like, wash your hands and only during bedtime. And like, was that cool? Or am I going to like mess up my kid? And she was like, actually, no, that was the dope thing to do. And so I can't underscore enough. Like, Kids are going to throw you like a whole bunch of craziness because you threw your mama a whole bunch of craziness. And so you're going to get it back a thousand times. And my God, I'm getting it back. I was horrible, apparently. And so, um, you know, just be prepared for that. Get you a circle of people that will validate you or talk you off the ledge and then just buckle up, buttercup. And also your 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 breasts will leak while you have sex. So no one told me that until it happened. That's always a surprise. That one. <laughs> I like to call it a pleasant surprise <laughs> for them. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is liquid gold, okay? But I was also right. like, I don't want to waste it here. Let me go get my... <laughs> it feels like a time to pump. <laughs> I was like, okay, nope. Stop the presses. You know. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us um, candidly. No, it was my pleasure. And I don't know any other setting than overly <laughs> candid. So <laughs> your default. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Root. Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. ROOT is a collective of concerned Black families, community members, advocates, and interdisciplinary professionals dedicated to decreasing Black maternal and infant mortality in Ohio. ROOT's mission is to comprehensively restore our collective well-being through collaboration, resource allocation, research, and re-empowerment in order to meet the needs of Black parents and families.
If you and your family are planning, pregnant, or in your postpartum period, please reach out to Root at www.rootrj.org. Financial assistance is available. You can also connect with Root at 614-398-1766 or email them at general-info at rootrj.org.